0: morning. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark chapter 14. Our time together will be greatly helped by you following along a copy of God's Word. If you do not have one with you, whether physically or on your phone or whatever device you brought with you, there should be a Bible underneath a seat near you. Feel free to use that. And if you do not have a Bible that you can call your own, we'd love for you to take that home. Consider that a gift from us to you this morning. We're going to begin reading in Mark chapter 14, verse 12. Mark writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself is here speaking to us. And if you're a person who likes to underline or write in your Bible, circle every time you see Passover. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, And the disciples sent out and went into the city, and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful, and to say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is the one, it is one of the twelve And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would help us understand your word now in this moment. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see the beauty of this truth as it has been decisively revealed in the word of God. We ask, Father, that you would drive us into deeper conformity with Christ. And for any who are present, who are not yet believers, we pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Gabe and Andy have been friends for over 20 years. Two friends, initially brought together by a shared passion for music and a love for games, have for more than six years walked 30 minutes once a week to give each other a high five. A tradition they started merely as a fun way to see each other more regularly. After moving within two miles of each other, Andy suggested they walk toward each other once a week and high five in the middle, which just so happens to be a local park. So at 8.05 a.m. on April 30th, 2014, they texted and said, all right, let's leave our houses They met at the middle point, gave each other a high-five, and then really weren't sure what they were supposed to do after that, so they stayed and talked for three hours. The only rule at the beginning was that they had to do it at least once a week. But over the years, the whole process began to evolve. Now, one of them will send the other a high-five emoji. The other person replies with the hand. Then they both reply with the walking emoji That's the only communication between them. Over time, friends became interested in this process, and they began to ask, can I go with you on the high-five walk? And on one occasion, they had 15 to 20 guys with them, some walking with Gabe, some walking with Andy, all in two long lines, high-fiving each other. They say that it's not uncommon for their wives and their kids to join them on the high-five walk. Even the high-five has changed over the years. At first, it was a pretty standard high-five, but over time, they, quote, started adding other moves to it. It eventually became a clap, snap, high-five. And if they were too busy for work on that day or with the demands of life, they would simply give each other what they would call the silent high-five without talking. But as you can imagine at this point, there were some rules to the silent high-five. They have to first pass each other without looking at each other as if they're strangers. They can't even smile. Then they have to each take 20 paces as they pass each other, turn around, immediately come back, but not acknowledge each other's existence until the very last second when they stick up their hand, high five, and then walk home. That's the only communication between them, the high five their hands touched that day. The high five is so intimately woven into the fabric of their very lives that Gabe said, quote, For the last six and a half years, it's been one of the most consistent things in my life. Until last year, when Gabe was diagnosed with a rare, more long-term version of encephalitis and lost significant portions of his memory. For the last three and a half years in Jesus' life, Fellowship with the Twelve has been one of the most consistent things in Jesus' life. Until Thursday night of the Lord's Last Supper, when Jesus is betrayed by his enemy and abandoned by his friends, on what we have come to know as Monday, Thursday, because of the new commandment that Jesus gives to us. In preparation for the meal, notice first Jesus' prediction. Look in verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed to the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And whenever he, wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples sent out and went into the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When Jesus wakes up on Thursday morning, he will likely not close his eyes again until he closes them in death on Friday afternoon. Yet Mark is very careful to tell us that Jesus never wavered, not even for a second. Jesus never hesitated or pump-faked in any way in the last day, in the final hours of his life. In fact, Mark is very careful to tell us that he remained fully prepared to take deliberate action that moved him ever toward the cross. When his disciples asked him, verse 12, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? As thousands of Passover pilgrims are crowding into the city of Jerusalem for the feast from all over the world, the disciples' minds have turned to obvious questions. What are we going to do? Where are we going to do it? When are we going to do what we're going to do? There's an urgency to their questions because of the significance of Passover in Jewish life. They know that it's an important festival. They know that there are certain rules that they have to abide by throughout the festival. In the way that they eat the food, where they eat it at, how they act after they've eaten the meal. And there's concern for all of us as readers if we're paying careful attention to the narrative. Because at this point, just the verses before our text today, we know that Judas has betrayed Jesus for some money. But Jesus is not concerned and he is already prepared. Mark tells us in verse 13... And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. They are prepared for us. The careful preparations made for this meal stress its importance to Jesus. It's not merely the Passover. It is the Lord's last supper. Jesus desired to have this meal with his disciples. Jesus was very careful to prepare for this meal. He was aware of the final hours of his life. He wanted to make sure that nothing made it impossible for them to be together. A fact Mark emphasizes by mentioning Passover four times in our text. He wants us to see that Jesus is having his last supper, the Lord's Supper, with his disciples on the evening of Passover. As Jesus comes together with them to have this Passover meal on the same day that he institutes the Lord's Supper. The very same day, verse 12, the Jews sacrificed the Passover lamb. They're happening at the same time, not on different days. The careful preparation not only stresses Jesus' desire, His instructions demonstrate His omniscience. And that He tells His disciples to go into the city, they're going to enter the city, they're going to see a man carrying a jar of water, a man that they are to follow until they come to a house, and there they are going to eat the Passover meal. Now, a man carrying a jar of water in ancient Jerusalem during Passover would have been highly unusual. Not only because it was considered a servant's job, but also because the city is filled with tens of thousands of Passover pilgrims who have come to the city. People would have been flocking all through the streets, and Jesus tells them, you're going to see somebody. It would have been Like, you actually know in your friend's acquaintance when you travel, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You go to Europe or Asia, and your one friend knows one European person or one Asian person, and they ask you, oh, did you see so-and-so? As if that's possible on your trip that went nowhere near where they live. Jesus is saying that same type of thing. You're going to see a guy. He's going to have a jar of water. They come into the city. What guy? What jar of water? Where? The fact that they encounter the man at all who leads them to the house where they're to eat the Passover, exhibits God's providence in these events. It teaches us that though he is truly man, he is truly God. Jesus is omniscient. And the fact that the room was ready shows us the importance of this meal to Jesus. He not only desired to have this, But Jesus took time to plan to make sure that this room was ready. To have a room at all within the walls of Jerusalem at this time was nearly impossible. People crammed into all kinds of spaces because there just wasn't enough space for everybody to eat the meal inside the walls of Jerusalem. But Jesus knew that there would be enormous crowds. So he planned ahead. He wanted to make sure he could have this meal. In that type of room with his disciples on the last night of his life. Mark tells us, in verse 16, the disciples set out, went into the city, and they found it just as Jesus had told them. Jesus' prediction, notice 2nd Judas' betrayal. Look at verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve. One who is dipping bread into the dish with me, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Jesus and his disciples would have spent several hours in the upper room, here in verse 15 as it points us to the place that they would be. The events would include, as we look at all of the Gospels together, the washing of the disciples' feet, eating the Passover meal, a prediction of Peter's denial and Judas' betrayal, and the lengthy teaching section that John records for us that we know as the high priestly prayer. Sometime around 6 p.m., Jesus and his disciples would go up there, and they would begin to recline around a U-shaped table. And the reason that's significant is because it tells us a little bit about where people were sitting. John was leaning on Jesus, sitting beside him. Judas receives a piece of bread that Jesus hands him, probably also sitting beside him. Sitting beside someone who loves him, sitting beside somebody who betrays him at a U-shaped table with all of his disciples, Peter looking on, probably across the table. Sitting there, Jesus says something that stuns the disciples in verse 18. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Talk about an ominous note for the evening. Yet once again, Jesus demonstrates his awareness. Jesus demonstrates his total control of all things. When we get to the end of Mark's narrative and we read it in a steady clip, we're prone to think that Jesus was living and then all of a sudden these bad people came and they snatched him out of this world as if he couldn't stop anything. Jesus knew exactly what was coming. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. Jesus had prepared for this moment. He was completely aware of what was taking place around him. He was aware and he was in control. He was carefully saying everything that he did, carefully doing everything that he did. There was no wasted word or action in Jesus' life. While he goes to his destiny, forsaken and alone, he remains sovereign and in absolute control as he marches towards the cross. Well, as you can imagine, after this pronouncement, The room would have been extremely tense when Jesus revealed to one of these people, hand-selected by him, one of you is going to betray me. Judas must have been stunned. Think of how you are when someone knows something that you've shared and you had no idea that they knew. Stunned. How could my secretive plan now be so well-known that while sitting at the table with Jesus, he would call me out in front of these people. The shocking revelation brings a fury of responsibilities from the, uh, responses from the disciples. They simply cannot believe it, verse 19, so they all begin to ask, Is it I? Is it I? Is it me? Is it I? Who is it? Jesus' reply to their question makes four things perfectly clear. Look in verse 20. He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. First, the traitor is one of the twelve. Second, the traitor is one of the ones who dips his hand in the dish with Jesus. Third, it would have been better for that person if they had never been born at all. Fourth. This was completely ordained by God. Now we read the Passion narrative, and specifically the Lord's Supper, and we begin to think that when Jesus speaks, it would have made everything really clear to everyone. But Jesus' comments about the betrayer being one of the people who would dip his hand in the bowl with him Did not make everything as clear as we think it did. Because at some point in that evening, everybody would have been dipping their hand in the bowl, which is why they all begin to ask, is it I? Is it me? Was I the one? Everybody is invested in the meal. No one knows. No one is looking at Judas and saying, I knew it. It had to have been him. He just looks like a traitor. He doesn't even look like somebody who really cares about the Lord at all. They're all confused. Judas looks just like them. Fellow Christians, just a scary thought. We can look like other believers, make ourselves think that we're other believers by doing what we think are right things. That is not what makes somebody a believer. They're all confused. And this underscores the terrible nature of Judas' treachery. He's not just some guy that everybody knew to be evil. He was a friend of Jesus, a friend of the disciples. Sharing a meal with Jesus. You have meals with your friends, with your family members, people that you love and that you care about. Judas is sitting at the table with Jesus. He is, verse 20, the one who is dipping bread into the dish with Jesus. Jesus' identification of the traitor alludes to Psalm 41, verse 9, where the psalmist says this, Even my friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. In that psalm of lament, David decries the fact that a close friend, somebody that Jesus trusted, somebody that David trusted in that psalm, a sign of friendship turns against him. David's sorrow points forward to the Davidic Messiah's sorrow. Judas' act of betrayal is a part of God's plan and it is written of in the Scriptures. And the fact that the betrayal is both the fulfillment of God's plan, as it has been prophesied in Scripture, but also the willful choice of Judas is clear. Look at verse 21. For the Son of Man goes as it has been written of Him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. God's sovereignty and Judas's human responsibility coexist. They are stated plainly side by side. This has been written of long ago. This person who betrays him, woe to that man. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. That Jesus must die in accordance with the scriptures certainly brings to mind passages like Isaiah 52. If you have your Bible, turn there with me. One of the most clear passages of Scripture about God fulfilling the sufferings of the Messiah. Isaiah 52, verse 13: Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations, kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told they see, and that which has not, uh, they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what they have heard for us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that has brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. A familiar text? Probably a text that you say, we've read that so much we don't even need to reread it. Reading that text along Mark 14, Mark 15, Mark 16 helps us see how God had planned this from long ago. But the emphasis in Mark 14, 17 through 21 is also on the certainty of Judas' judgment. Verse 21. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. It would have been better to never be born than to live a whole life, a full life, and not know Jesus savingly. Parents, it would be better for your child to have never been born than to be the child who is most gifted academically, most talented in sports, most prestigious appointments in our government, making more money than anyone else, and not know Jesus savingly. Friends. It would be better for your friends and your family members, those that you love, to have never been born than to live the most full life we can ever imagine and not know the Lord. We have it all backwards. We look at the celebrity world and we're so jealous. But friends, it is better to have never been born than to have all of that and never know the Lord. Jesus' prediction, Judas' betrayal. Notice third Jesus' pledge. Look at verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drank it new in the kingdom of God. The Passover meal consisted of several basic elements, each one having a very symbolic importance contributing to the retelling of the Exodus story. That's what this whole meal was about, retelling the story of how God had redeemed his people with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, how he had saved them and taken them out of the land of Egypt and set them free. They are retelling that story to themselves, reminding them, God has saved us. God has delivered us, and God will do that again. The Passover lamb reminded them of the blood of the lamb smeared on the doorpost to escape the visitation of the angel of death. The unleavened bread reminded them of the swiftness of their redemption. They didn't have any time before they had to take flight and run out of the city. A bowl of fruit puree reminded them of the clay that they used to make bricks during their captivity. The bowl of salt water reminded them of their tears during their slavery and of the water of the Red Sea. The bitter herbs recalled the bitterness of their bondage. Four cups of wine were drunk during the Passover meal. Each cup commemorated one of the four promises that God made to his people in in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. The passage reads, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord... I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. The whole meal was a liturgy reminding them of deliverance. The first Passover represented God's greatest act of deliverance in Hebrew Scriptures and a creation of a new people. The people of Israel were born as a nation because of that great act. They always pointed back, and the whole Old Testament is pointing back to the Exodus. It's pointing back to that Exodus as it looks forward to a new Exodus. Yahweh defeated Pharaoh, a seemingly undefeatable enemy. He crushed him, an enemy that did not seem to be able to be thwarted. He delivered his people from slavery by the blood of a sacrificial lamb. The Israelites were to kill that lamb, and they were to rub blood on the doorpost. We see, as John read for us earlier in Exodus chapter 12, verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. One of the unique things about the last plague is that it's a plague that the people of Israel, if they do not obey, they too will suffer the punishment as a result of that. The point is made a second time in the same passage that he read. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood of, on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. Friends, the importance of the event just cannot be overestimated. It is impossible to overestimate the significance of the exodus for the people, which is why we have to slow down when we're reading about it in our Bibles. It is an event of such monumental significance that parents are told to tell children, that children are told to ask questions, that every year they are to enact it out, Every year, they're to put a new lamb to death. Every year, they're to have this special meal. Every year, they are to remind themselves of what they are prone to forget and of what they will forget. Constantly reminding themselves, God saves. God delivers. God acts on behalf of his people. And signal not only their release from Egypt and their release from slavery, but the dawning of a new covenant At the same time, it foreshadowed something that none of them ever foresaw, the death of a Passover lamb, the Passover lamb, Jesus. Later, when Israel was oppressed and defeated by our enemies, the prophets predicted that God would return to Zion, and he would accomplish a new and greater exodus. And it is in light of this historical context that there are a lot of parallels between the Passover and the Lord's Supper, and they become obvious. In the Passover, God remembered his covenant with Abraham. At the Lord's Supper, a new covenant is established between God and his people. At the Passover, Israel remembered their bondage and slavery and that God had delivered them. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, believers are reminded of their former slavery to sin and to Satan. But through Christ, in his death, we receive forgiveness and freedom from bondage to sin. You never have to sin again if you're a believer in Christ. In the Passover, the blood... Of the Passover lamb was smeared across the doorpost to remind each family that they had to be obedient to God. A lamb had to die to secure their freedom inside their own house. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, the blood of Christ, our Passover lamb, we are reminded that it has been shed for us. Jesus' words recall uh, recall this and transform the rich symbolism of Passover, announcing the arrival of a new exodus and the inauguration of a new covenant. Look in verse 22 again. As they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them. Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank. And he said to them, that this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. There's a liturgy as he's enacting this out for them. But Jesus' words have been a source of a lot of confusion and debate for people. The controversy centers on the interpretation of his statements. This is my body and this is my blood. So very quickly, I want to hopefully close the gap in on this for us. Roman Catholic Church says that this is transubstantiation. They hold The view that once the priest speaks a blessing, the bread and the wine are transformed into Jesus' blood and body, and they maintain a position that the bread and wine physically remain bread and wine. That is wrong. The second understanding is associated with Lutherans, consubstantiation. They teach that the bread and wine remain bread and wine. But the spiritual presence of Christ's body and blood are present around and in and through the elements. To be completely honest, when you read on this, it doesn't sound that much different than what Roman Catholics believe to me. And it's also wrong. Protestants, we believe, Jesus' words are taken in a more symbolic fashion. Emphasizing thought of remembering rather than focusing on them becoming something different. It is a memorial. Think of it like this. We're talking after the service. You've never met my wife, and in my Bible, I pull out a picture, and I say, this is my wife, Megan. And then I take that picture, and I stick it back in my Bible. Nobody thinks I put Megan in my Bible. All language has symbolic, metaphorical language. Jesus is speaking of a symbolism here to remind the people of something new taking place. This Passover meal involved a prescribed order. First came a blessing for the festival, the first cup of wine next the food would be brought out and the youngest son would ask a very simple question asking his father why is this night different than all the other nights and then all of these items would be brought to the table and the father would begin to explain the significance of each one of these items and he would give praise to god for past redemption and future redemption and they would sing psalms 113 and psalm 114 after drinking the second cup of wine the bread would be blessed and broken and distributed The bread would be eaten with the bitter herbs and then the fruit uh, fruit puree. The meal was then eaten and the Passover meal included this roasted lamb. At the conclusion of the meal, the Father would bless this third cup. And then they would sing Psalms 115 through 118. And then they would have a fourth cup of wine and conclude the meal. Jesus' statement, verse 25, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God, directs his disciples' attention to something. His second coming in a banquet. This unleavened bread, Jesus' body, is something that reminds them that they are to do something until he comes again. His body was broken for them. This wine represents something that points them forward to a feast. His blood has been poured out for them. Jesus' words echo Exodus 24.8. Moses took the blood and threw it on, on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor. And each one his brother saying know the Lord. For they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. And remember their sins no more. In the midst of this ceremonial meal. Jesus steps up and says words that are different. And does something that's different. Because he's about to do something that's different. To bring about a different redemption. And act a new covenant for the people. And he's telling them that it's going to happen through his death. And they are to remember by celebrating this meal in remembrance of him. Friends, every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, we remember something that we are prone to forget because of our sin. Something that you might not know is that one of the most frequent commands in the Old Testament across that into the New Testament is to remember. 169 times in the Bible. We are to remember so that we don't forget. The first week that Gabe was in the hospital with encephalitis, there was a special high-five moment. He was allowed one visitor a day, and Andy stayed overnight so Gabe's wife could go home and be with their daughter. That night, Andy asked him, Do you know who I am? Gabe replied, Yeah, Andy. Did I get it wrong earlier? Sorry about that. Would you forgive me? Then Andy asked, do you remember anything about the high five? To which Gabe replied, no. The next morning, Gabe got up to use the restroom, and Andy said, Gabe, this probably isn't going to make any sense to you, but when you're coming back from the bathroom, I'm going to walk toward you, and I need you to give me a high five. And as Andy started to walk toward Gabe, right before the high five, Gabe did the clap, snap, high five. And Andy just burst into tears. Later in an interview discussing that night in the hospital, Gabe said, that's one of the things that I love about the routine of it. Not just the mechanics of it, but the friendship part of it. It's just so burned into my body's memory that that's what came out, even though I couldn't remember anything. And now after having spent weeks in the hospital, I've just been trying to define my life again, And this guy and that thing that we started years ago is a huge part of it. When asked what it was like to carry on a tradition with a friend who can't remember it, Andy said, there have been seasons for me where I needed more emotional support and Gabe was there to walk with me through it. During this time, I have been carrying more of the memory, but that's the normal ebb and flow of any relationship. This feels like a time when I can repay Gabe for the ways that he's carried me in the past. When asked what it was like to learn anew something that was already so special to him, Gabe replied, In the midst of something that I've never felt before, where my brain was just swirling, there was some kind of routine. It brought a little less chaos into what was already a pretty chaotic time for me. And now, even after six years of doing this simple thing, every time I see my wonderful buddy, walking down the side of the road toward me, that's special. We're dedicated to each other. We're showing each other in a way other than just calling each other and saying, hey, I love you. We're actually doing something, and that hasn't gotten old. And it never will. Beautiful things like the high five will never get old. They're gifts to the world. And in a world filled with so many ugly things, we need beautiful routines and acts to remind us of what is truly important. In a world filled with chaos and anarchy, disloyalty and depression and brokenness and death and coronavirus and political unrest and racism and slavery, and sex trafficking, and distrust, and hate. We need beautiful things to remind us of what is truly important, of what we are not only prone to forget, but we will most certainly forget because of our sin. We need beautiful things to re-narrate our lives around beautiful stories, the story of redemption. And brothers and sisters, that is exactly what that seemingly long-winded liturgy of the Passover meal reminds us of. It re-narrates us around the story of redemption. And that is exactly what happens every single time we observe the Lord's Supper together as a community. We are telling each other a story. His body was broken for us. Not just you, the collective us. His blood was shed for us, not just you, the collective us. God brings us into an us, and we tell each other a story. We are all sinners who are in desperate need of a Savior, and that God so loved us. This God sent his son into the world that he would be beaten and mocked and murdered and ripped apart and put to death On a cross, his blood spilt so that we might have everlasting life. Every time we observe observe baptism appear, whether it's the person being baptized or you observing it as a believer, we are telling each other the story of a redemption. That a God who was also a king so loved his bride that he was willing to gladly die for her. He died, he went under, but he rose again in power, and he will raise all of those who trust in him to everlasting life. We remind ourselves of what we are prone to forget, that he is coming again for us, that we will die. You hold somebody down too long, they stop breathing. We will die, but he will come again, and he will raise us up, and we will live forever. We tell ourselves the beautiful story of redemption each and every week. We come in here and we remind ourselves God's word is what calls us to worship. God's word is what reminds us that we are sinners as we confess our sins. God's word is what assures us that we can be pardoned from it. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins. God's word is what we turn our attention to, reminding us that we need a revelation. Here it is. Read the Bible. You want to hear God speak to you out loud? Read the Bible out loud. We remind ourselves of God doing a wonderful thing for us, we tell ourselves the story of redemption. Why? Because the world is telling us a different story. The world is trying to re-narrate you, put you in a different storyline, and tell you something that is false and untrue. So each and every week, we do not apologize for the songs that we sing, or the readings that we read, or the length of our service, Because we need to stop and be reminded of the beautiful story of the gospel. That God so loved wicked people that he sent his one and only son to suffer the death that you deserve to die. As a substitute in your place, he was crushed for your iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that now brings you peace. Only by his wounds can you be healed. And we invite you to participate in that story. If you're not a Christian in here, come to Christ and participate in the story. You can do that by asking God to forgive you of your sins right now, and he will forgive you. You might think, I've sinned too much. God won't forgive me. You would be dead wrong to think that. You might think, I've sinned too big a sin. I've done things that are really bad. You would be wrong to think that God could not forgive you. You might think, I've waited too long. You would be wrong to think that God has brought you here today so that you would hear the gospel. This is his mercy to you. Repent right now. You might think that God would not like you because other people don't like you. You would be wrong. God made you in his image, and he has called you to himself right now. Repent and trust in Christ. Participate in the story through repentance and faith. Believer. You need the abrupt stop every week to be reminded of the beauty of the story. And what you need to do each and every week is to go home and remind yourself of the beauty of the story that God loves you, that His Son died for you, that He has sent His Spirit to you, and He has filled you with that Spirit so that you might walk in power. And He is coming again. For you. No matter how much suffering you have this side of eternity. He is coming for you. No matter how much sorrow. He is coming for you. No matter how sad you are. He is coming and there will be a day when you will be glad. You will stand in his presence. And you will receive the good word from the son of God. Well done, good and faithful servant. And if you are even the least bit aware of the sinfulness of your sin in your own life. The utter astonishing word, well done, should blow your mind and drive you to your knees. How dare us treat other people made in God's image and who profess to be brothers and sisters in Christ with ugliness, ugly words, ugly deeds, things typed online things shared behind people's backs. Brothers and sisters, Jesus stopped in a world of chaos and told his disciples a beautiful story. Look at the structure. Right before Jesus tells them about the Lord's Supper, he tells them of an ugly act, Judas will betray me. And right after he tells them of a beautiful act, him giving his life, he tells them that Peter will deny him we see in the midst of two ugly acts, Jesus still stops to tell them something beautiful. Nobody is deserving of mercy. But I have made a pledge. I will act on behalf of my people. I will save them. I will forgive them. This one will follow according to what the scripture is written. And this one who sins, you think you've sinned so bad? Peter denied the Son of God. Not once, but three times he was restored to meaningful service, used mightily on behalf of the Savior. Friends, the gospel is calling us to something beautiful, and it is calling us to build something beautiful. But you can't do that alone. We invite you to come and to build something beautiful with us. If you're not a member of a church, we invite you to join a church. We keep telling you there's a sign-up list at the Connection Center. That was mostly to see if you'd go to the Connection Center. I've been informed that there's no sign-up list there. So what I'd like for you to do is to send us an email. Send us an email. We are having a membership class. We would like for you to go through that class and consider joining our church. That class doesn't make you a member. But brothers and sisters, come and build something beautiful here with us. Serve. Serve one another. Serve in the context of the church and serve each other as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Serve people who don't agree with you. Serve people who don't like all of the things that you like. Serve people who are different than you, who don't look like you. Serve them. Because, brothers and sisters, that is exactly what Jesus did, and that is what is beautiful. The world tells you serve people who agree with you on everything, that's baloney. It's hogwash, and it's ugly. Serve people who aren't like you. That's what's beautiful. Serving people, forgiving people, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Sing That is one of the ways that we build something beautiful. Singing loud together, reminding ourselves of these gospel truths, holding one another up in our services through our singing, reminding each other, yet not I, but Christ in me. And the weaker brothers and sisters in the room say amen. And the stronger brothers and sisters say, I'm here with you. Evangelizing. Build something beautiful. Call people to participate in this. Pray that God would make us more evangelistic in 2021. We are not short for unbelievers in our community. People who, like us, have souls that will never die. Call them into something that is beautiful. But friends, please be aware, you can't call them into something that is beautiful when we act ugly toward one another. And the world is watching. The church should be ashamed of itself right now. Our church and every church we have paved over other people's sadness as if it doesn't matter. Friends, I don't care who you voted for and I don't care who is president. These are people who are made in God's image. And if you have a problem with them, you have a problem with the gospel and you have a problem with our church's leadership, you need to come talk to us. You must love them even if they don't agree with you. In everything you type, everything, and everything you say, The world is watching, and they see people who are proclaiming a beautiful message, doing ugly things, and they don't want to be a part of it. There is a confusion. Donald Trump was not the savior, and neither is President Biden. Jesus Christ is the savior. Both governments are flawed, and both of them will do some good things. They're worldly rulers. Come build something that is beautiful. You want to change the world? Help us build the church. The gates of hell will not prevail against the beauty of the church. Living with one another in an understanding way. Being patient with each other. Praying for one another. Forgiving each other as God and Christ has forgiven you. Beautiful things. Like the high five. Remind us of something that is eternal. Two guys who otherwise had nothing in common found each other. And said, we want to show our affection for each other. It's worth putting our lives on pause to come together, to remind each other that we are loved. Your presence here is one way that you have done that for other people. You are loved. We love you. I love you. And we invite you to participate in this beautiful story of a king who came for his people, died for them, Rose again and will come again. A king who so loved his bride, he gave his life. You can believe in that right now and come and participate in that story. Would you come? Let's pray. Father, we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you would once again remind us of the beauty of redemption as we pause to sing and stop to observe. And one of the two ordinances that you've given to the church. The beauty of the gospel. It is on display and it is proclaimed. It is proclaiming to us. That though we die, yet shall we live. By faith in the Savior, Jesus, the Son of God. Amen.